right, so we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, and we'll be reading for verses 20 to 40 today. It says this, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am, of le and am left a prophet of the Lord, for, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two be bowls be given to us, and let us choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answer, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing or is he, re he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lashes, lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. I think sometimes making a commitment it can be a scary thing, when we don't, especially when we don't know what the outcome of that commitment is going to be. Or maybe when we're a little bit unsure of that commitment. So when I was in maybe later high school, early college, uh, the town where I was living in, they had a shortage of umpires. And so they were really looking for umpires, and they were paying a pretty, pretty good wage at that time for uh, umping a game. And so I decided I'm going to be an umpire. Now, there's a couple things you need to know about me. Number one, I don't like confrontation. So the idea of having coaches and parents yelling at me didn't really sound that appealing. But it was a good price, good, good pay. Second thing you need to know about me, I don't really make snap judgments. I like to kind of think about my decisions, think about them, kind of 
let them marinate in my mind before I make a decision. Again, not the best thing for being an umpire. So, needless to say, I only umpired a few games. That, that was my career. But I remember one particular game, I, uh, I, was, I, was, I was in the field, and the, uh, it was a little league. The pitcher threw the ball, kid hit it, goes to the infield. The, the batter's running towards first base. The infielder gets it, throws it to first base, and it was a close call. And this is my moment as an umpire. i got to make this call. And so I looked, and I said, out, but I motioned like this. To which the coach yelled, which is it? And honestly, the reason I did that was because I wasn't quite sure if he was out or safe. So I wasn't really willing to make a commitment. Sometimes it's hard to make a commitment if we're not sure of the outcome or we're not sure if we should make that commitment. I, I don't know if you've ever happened, had this happen to you before, but... Have you ever made a decision, and even though you knew it was the right decision, uh, once you got to that point where you made a commitment or had to make a commitment, it got really scary? I remember when I was in high school, I felt like God was calling me into ministry, and uh, you know, I, I really felt fairly strongly that that's where God was going to have me. Um, but then when it came to choosing a college major, I got a little bit scared, so I decided to study some other things that were kind of not really related to, to ministry. Um, I remember when I was uh, 2013, I started dating my wife, and uh, I knew after about two dates that I wanted to marry her. After three months, I went and bought a ring. As soon as I bought the ring, I started to freak out. Like, what if this is the wrong decision? What if I'm making a mistake? Is this too soon? Am I being rash in this decision? And so I started to freak out about the commitment, even though I knew I wanted to marry her, even though it turned out to be the best decision of my life, I was scared about this commitment. So I debated and hemmed and hawed and held on to that ring for eight more months before I actually gave it to her. Sometimes commitments are difficult, especially when we're not sure of the outcome. Um, specifically in our country, um, specifically related to marriage, that's the case. Uh, studies, uh, one, according to one CDC Report studies have shown that adults in the United States are increasingly postponing marriage and that a record number of current youth and young adults are projected to forego marriage altogether. Because there's, you know, the commitment, having that commitment is difficult. Uh, it's not just with marriage, it's also with spirituality. The latest survey from 2021 from Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center found that belief in God has declined between generations. 83% uh, of those in the silent generation, born 1927 to 1945, professed belief in God. 79% of baby boomers, 70% of Gen Xers, and only 43% of America, uh, millennials, born 1984 to 2002. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, 43% said that they don't know, care, or believe that God exists. Only 57% said they were Christians. So you have 43% of millennials, the younger generation, they don't know, care, or believe that God exists. And, you know, many of them are not willing to say God doesn't exist. They're not willing to go that far. But they're also not willing to commit that he does exist. Because if he does exist, that has ramifications for how we live. Uh, psychologist Heidi Grant Halverson puts it this way. 
She says, people overwhelmingly prefer reversible decisions to irreversible ones. They believe it's better to keep your options open, open whenever possible. They wait years before declaring a major, date someone for years before getting married, favor stores with a guaranteed return policy, think Zappos, hire employees on a temporary basis or use probationary periods, all in order to avoid commitments that can be difficult or nearly impossible to undo. People believe that this is the best way to ensure their own happiness and success. I think the same thing is true in the passage that we just read that we're looking at today. Ahab is the king at this time, and we talked about a little bit about his reign last, last week. He was like the most wicked king of all the kings up to this point, uh, which is really saying a lot. He led the people in the worship of Baal, and he's just you know, going full, uh, full speed into idolatry. And the people, it seems, kind of had one foot in, in, in one direction and one foot in the other direction. On the one hand, they wanted to serve the true God, Yahweh, and on the other hand, they wanted to serve Baal. They're not really, really fully willing to commit to God, but they're also not fully willing to commit to Baal either. Look at what the text says again, verse 21. It says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And so Elijah says, Make a decision. If you're going to follow God, follow God. Get rid of these altars to Baal. Stop you know, trying to follow after him. If you're going to follow Baal, then stop pretending like you're going to follow after the true God. And it says in the text that the people didn't answer him a word. Because in their minds, it's better, just, let's just keep our option open. Why do we have to make a decision? Why do we have to say we're going to follow the true God or we, have, we follow Baal? You know, if it brings us benefits to follow the true God, Yahweh, let's just follow after him and maybe he'll bless us in some way. Let's follow after Baal, too. Maybe he'll bless us. I mean, why do we have to choose? Why, why can't we just keep our options open? And so ha they had the same struggle with commitment way back thousands of years ago. Here's the thing that's interesting is, you know, we think about commitment, and we think about this idea of keeping our options open. And especially in our culture, we have this belief that if we keep our options open, we'll be happier. If we keep our options open, we'll be more satisfied. But actually, research shows that that's the opposite. Research shows that when we keep our options open and don't commit, it shackles us. It makes us less happy and less satisfied. Uh, there was a psychologist by the name of Daniel Gilbert, and he did a study a few years ago, um, which he re reported in his book called Stumbling on Happiness. And in this study, participants were given an art poster. And some of the participants were told, hey, Pick out an art, uh, one of these posters. You can take it home. Uh, thanks for being a part of this study. Other participants were told, here, pick out a poster, whichever one you want. Take it home. And if you decide that you don't like it, in 30 days, within 30 days, you can come back and you can change, exchange it for something else that you like better. And they found that the people who were committed, that didn't have the, the option to exchange it, they were more satisfied with their poster than people who had the option to return it. Heidi Grant Halverson, again, who to my knowledge is not a believer, wasn't, you know, not even from a Christian book, from psychology today, but she concludes this. She says, but assuming that your choice is carefully considered and you've weighed your options, you will be both happier and more successful if you make a decision and don't look back. 
So psychologically, there's definitely an advantage to committing, not keeping our options open. And in the scriptures, there's definitely a call to make a commitment. We see in the Old Testament prophets, Old Testament writers, uh, in Jesus himself, and the, the, these writers try to bring people to a point of decision. The people have to commit to God or commit you know, to turn away from him. Let's look at what it says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. It says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Luke 9, verses 18 and 19 says this, Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old was risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Throughout the scriptures we see that God declares himself to be a jealous God and he demands that we make a commitment to him if we're going to follow after him. And I think there's a couple different ways that we can fail to, follow, uh, fail to commit to Christ. Two different ways that I see, maybe even more. The first way is that we can fail to commit to Jesus exclusively. And that's what it appears they did in this passage. They were okay with following after the true God, Yahweh, to a certain extent. But they weren't following after him to the extent that they were going to get rid of their idols as well. They wanted to follow after God and Baal at the same time. It's interesting, in nature you'll occasionally see something that's pretty odd. You'll see a two-headed snake. This isn't something of uh, mythical legend. It actually exists. It's very rare, but it does happen. And what often happens is, you know, these, this two-headed snake will have kind of two control centers, two different brains, and often they'll share one body. But what's interesting is you'll find that oftentimes they kind of go different directions. They'll fight over food. They'll fight over food even though that food is going to go to the same place. Sometimes even if, if one of the heads smells food on the other head, try to attack and eat the other head, think it's food. They have trouble evading predators. One snake, one head wants to go this way, the other head wants to go that way. And oftentimes they're in this, this battle to determine which direction that they're going to go in. And whichever head wins, which I don't know how that's determined, how, do they, how, how does one head gain dominance, but one head wins and then the other one just kind of has to be dragged along. I mean, it's no wonder that in nature they don't survive very long because they're not very good at hunting food. They can't decide when, you know, how they're going to do that, and they're fighting over that same piece of food, and they're not good at evading predators, so they don't live very long in the wild. And I think that picture of that two-headed snake is kind of what it's like when we don't commit to Christ exclusively. It's like there's two kind of control centers it's like Jesus is one of the voices controlling our lives, and then there's something else controlling our lives. It could be a number of different things. In the, in the passage we just read in Mark chapter 10, 
Jesus speaks to the young ruler, and for him it was money. You know, he loved his possessions. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, just go and sell all that you have and come follow me. Now, we read that, and sometimes we're like, well, do we have to sell all that we have to become a believer? Does it mean we have to renounce everything? No, I don't think it necessarily means that, but for him, that was that other God that was controlling his life. He wanted to follow after Jesus. He loved what Jesus was saying, but he also loved his money. So it was like he was going in two different directions. It could be anything. It could be comfort. It could be driven by Christ comfort. It could be Christ and relationships, Christ and sex, Christ and our family, Christ in our career. It could be any number of things, not even things that are bad in and of themselves. But there's only one, there's only one for room for one person, the throne room of our hearts. And when there's kind of two heads, there are two control centers, inevitably what's going to happen is one is going to gain dominance. And oftentimes if we're trying to follow Christ and someone or something else at the same time, there's, it's going to kind of, we're going to kind of vacillate between two extremes. Sometimes we're going to be following after Christ, doing the right things. But when we're doing that, we're going to feel like we're really missing out. I mean, because there's a sense in which we want to honor Christ and follow after him, but there's a sense in which we want to do other things. We want to have control. And so even when we're following after Christ, maybe we feel like we're missing out and we feel this kind of dissatisfaction and tension in our lives. Maybe it causes us to do the right things, but doing them for the wrong motives. You know, we keep the letter of the law, but our hearts are far from Christ because we really don't want to be doing those things. We don't want to be honoring Christ fully, but we think that we should. Other times, it changes. Other times, you know, maybe that other idol kind of gains the, the dominant foothold in our lives. And we do, we're doing things that we know that, we're, that are wrong, and we don't even get joy or satisfaction out of them because we feel guilty. We know we shouldn't be doing them. We feel conflicted. It's tough to be a two-headed snake. I mean, it's almost better uh, that to, to, to kind of choose to follow Christ exclusively or choose to follow our idol because when we're kind of caught between those two extremes, we're not satisfied with either one. We see in this passage, in the midst of these, these people that are kind of conflicted between following after Baal and following after the true God, God demonstrates his power and he tries to bring the people to a point of decision. He tries to show his power in such a miraculous way that people would have to leave their idols behind. We see this kind of test or contest that's set up. Prophets of Baal build an altar and uh, they don't put fire on the altar. They're supposed to call down fire from heaven. And so they start praying to Baal, and Baal isn't answering. Baal isn't listening. So they start cutting themselves and dancing around from morning till afternoon, and nothing happens. And Elijah comes up and starts taunting them and said, Is your God sleeping? Is he going to the bathroom? Doesn't seem like he's listening. Don't see any fire on the altar. So then... Elijah goes, built an altar, puts a bull on it, puts, uh, puts wood on it, takes water three times, three jugs of water puts on it, so much so that there's a little trench around the altar and the water just overflows. Then he cries out to God and God answers him 
and God just devours that altar. The bull, the wood, the water, it's just obliterated. And people realize Yahweh, he is the God who saves. He is the God who answers. Baal, he doesn't even answer. He's not even listening. And so it brings the people to a point of decision where God's power is so strong and so mighty that they have to make a choice. Am I going to follow the true and mighty God or am I going to follow this God that is ineffectual and weak? And I think in our case, God has done something very similar. In our case, God has demonstrated his power in such an incredible way in the resurrection. Jesus was dead in the grave. Three days later, he rose up from the grave to demonstrating his power over sin and death. And if that is true, if he truly rose from the grave, it means that what he said is true. That he can believe, be believed, he can be trusted, that he's worthy of our commitment. And so he brings us to a point of decision, doing something so miraculous and so powerful that we have to make a decision. Are we going to serve the resurrected Christ or are we going to serve God's who do not save or satisfy. Two-headed snake soon dies. As believers, we need to choose if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to commit to him, if we're going to commit to him exclusively. So that's the first way we can fail to commit to Christ. The second way is we can fail to commit to Christ completely. And I think this is a trap that believers fall into uh, all the time. I think all of us as believers, we fall into this trap. You know, and sometimes we don't even do it intentionally. Sometimes we, we think we've committed to Christ, but there's areas of our life that we're kind of holding on to, to control of. Or maybe there's patterns that have become part of our life that we just don't recognize them as sinful things that are not honoring to Christ. And when this happens, these areas of our lives that are not given over to Christ can have negative effects on our life. Uh, there's a story a Haitian pastor once told uh, about a man who was selling a house. Uh, he wanted to sell his house for $2,000. It was just you know, a small little shack. Another man wanted to buy it very badly, but he didn't have the money for the house. And so they came up with a deal. The owner of the house who was selling it said, all right, I'll give you the house for half price, $1,000. But the only stipulation is I'm going to own one nail that's sticking out in the middle of the house. The person, the buyer, was elated. He said, sure, anything so that I can get in this house. Well, in the course of time, after several years, the original owner decided that he wanted the house back. But the new owner wasn't willing to sell it at this point. So what the first owner did was he went out and found the carcass of a dead animal and hung it from the nail that he still owned in this house. Soon the house became unlivable. The family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The pastor concluded, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. Sin in one area of our life affects all of our lives. And sometimes we don't even do it intentional, and so we need to, uh, as believers, we need to be in God's word, and we need to ask God, God, show me areas of my life where I may be disobe being disobedient to you. Show me areas of my life that are not under your lordship so that the devil doesn't gain a foothold. 
So Christ calls us to commit to him exclusively and completely, and sometimes that's hard for us. But when we get to a place where we do that, when we commit to him, I mean, it's freeing, it's liberating, but also when we make that step of faith, sometimes there's doubt that's introduced. Sometimes we start to question, did we make the right decision? Should we really have committed to Christ? Remember last week we looked at the story of this widow from a place called Zarephath, which was uh, controlled by Sidon. Sidon was kind of the center of the worship of Baal, center of idol worship. And uh, remember the story how uh, this woman was, was star- her and her son were starving to death. There was a famine in the land. Uh, they didn't have hardly anything to eat. All they had was a little bit of uh, flour, a little bit of oil, and basically she's planning on just going home, having one last meal, uh, and then they're likely going to die. And then remember Elijah comes and says, hey, give me a cake first. Give me a piece of this uh, cake that you're, you're baking first, and then feed yourself and your child, and when you do that, your supply is never going to run out. And she has incredible faith in that while she's starving to death, she gives away the little bit that she has. And God blesses her, and that flour never runs, runs out, the oil never runs out, and, and her and her son are fine. They have enough food. But then in the course of time, her son gets ill and dies. And then she starts to question God. She starts to question Elijah. Look at what she says in chapter 17, verse 18. She says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, to cause the death of my son. You can imagine how she felt. She had committed. She had shown such faith. And now her son was dead anyways. Elijah then goes, prays to the Lord, and God does something miraculous. God raises her son from the grave. And as God demonstrates his power, it leads her to an even deeper commitment to the Lord. She says, now I know that you're a man of God and the word of the Lord is truth. Following Jesus, it's not always easy. Sometimes as we're following after Jesus, it'll lead us to places of doubt. Sometimes it will lead us into valleys. And in those times, we need to keep fighting, keep walking the path, and and God will bring things in our lives to deepen our strength, our, our trust and commitment to him. So if you're in the midst of a difficult time, if you've committed your life to Christ and yet you're still struggling, keep fighting, keep going. Following Christ is worth it. Like the song that we just sang, when we get to the end, we'll see that it's worth it all. Every commitment, every sacrifice we've ever made for Christ, it's, it'll be worth it. Imagine you have a friend call you up one day, and your friend says, I I have a special present for you. I want to give you a 14-day, all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii in November. I'm going to pay for your airfare. I'm going to pay for your hotel. I'm going to pay for your food. I'm going to pay for your activities. And on top of that, I'm going to give you $1,000 for spending money. Your friend says to you, here's the thing. I'm making all the arrangements right now, and I need you to make a firm commitment whether you're going to go on that trip in November or not. Now, if that was me, I would be, yeah, sign me up. I'm clearing out the schedule. It doesn't matter what I may have in November. 
I'm going on that trip. You'd probably say the same thing. Because the trip is worth the commitment. It's worth the commitment because it's such a great gift. And I think the same thing is true with Christ. Jesus is worth the commitment. If you were given that gift, you wouldn't be sitting around thinking, hmm, what a bummer. I mean, i got to take up two weeks of my life. I mean, i got to block off all of that time. Who knows what might come up between now and then that I might want to do during that time. You wouldn't think about any of those things. You would be excited that you're going to Hawaii for free. Following Christ is worth it. Every sacrifice, every commitment, every hard road that we walk on, he's worth it. It's a road that's not always easy, but it is good. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this, Again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Certainly when we think about following after Christ, there's a one-time commitment when we decide we're going to follow after Christ. That's the moment when we become saved. You know, we're kind of headed in one direction, kind of following after our own desires and control of, of what we want. And then we repent and turn to Christ, put our faith and trust in him, and commit, God, I want to follow after you. So there's kind of a one-time nature of that commitment, but there's kind of also an ongoing nature of that commitment. As believers in Christ, each and every day we need to decide if we're going to commit our lives to Christ or not. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him take up his cross daily. It's not just about a one-time thing. Of course, there's one time when we receive Christ, when we commit to Christ, but it's each and every day we have that choice. Are we going to follow after our own desires or are we going to follow after Christ? John Stott wrote a book in 1971 called Basic Christian, and after writing the revised copy of that, he received a letter the letter said something like this. It said, Dear John, thank you for writing Basic Christianity. It led me to make a new commitment of my life to Christ. I'm old now, nearly 78, but not too old to make a new beginning. I rejoice in all the grand work that you're doing. Yours sincerely, Leslie Weatherhead. The thing that was interesting about that note that he received was Leslie had, Leatherhead uh, was one of the most respected and influential Christian leaders at that time. He had spoken to thousands. He was the kind of the pioneer of pastoral counseling. He had written many books, sought after, highly respected. And yet at the age of 78, he was humble enough to recognize he needed to make a new commitment to Christ. Each and every day we have that choice. Are we going to commit to Christ or are we going to follow after our own desires? Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our commitment. He's worthy of every sacrifice that we make. And when we make that choice daily to die to ourselves, to, com to commit to him exclusively and completely, that's when we find life. That's when we find joy. That's when we find that life is, is going as it was meant to be lived. It's in a relationship with Christ where we're committed exclusively and completely to him. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you made the ultimate commitment to us. Before we could ever love you or do anything for you, you did everything for us. You came to the cross, paid the ultimate penalty. Even while we were yet sinners, you were committed to us. Lord, we know that you leave us with choices. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they turn from the direction they're going and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, for those who are believers today, Lord, we know that every day we have a choice. A choice whether we're going to feed into our sinful desires or we're going to honor you. Lord, help us to be a people who honor you with our lives. People who are committed to you in good times and in bad times. People who are committed to you exclusively and also completely. Lord, we know that sometimes there's areas of our life where we start to take control. Patterns that become part of our lives that maybe we don't even recognize but are not honoring to you. Lord, speak to us through your word. Speak to us through the, your Holy Spirit. And turn us back onto the right path for any 